All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. I am Randy. I am joined in studio by Mr. Tron Carter. Tron, how are you today? H-Town week, baby. Woo. It's a big one. Uh, we're recording this on election day. I, I assume... Vote you know, or die, bitches. <laughs> vote or die. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, you did vote, and hopefully you did not die. Uh, it could be a sweepstakes tonight. Yeah. I mean, the Jack Speech mayoral race is, is, is lit. God, we've been so deep in that. I, I think we came to a very comfortable conclusion though yeah it's uh, very nonpartisan too yeah no this is this is a chris hoffman house it is chris hoffman versus janelle wilson we're i vote solely on the basis of jack speech municipal golf course and what's going to be best for that yep and so uh yeah good luck to good luck to mayoral candidate uh mrs hoffman or miss hoffman i don't know if she's married or not Anyway, uh, I want to thank our sponsor, one of our sponsors for today's episode. It's a new one, TC. It's New Belgium Brewing Company. Uh, they are recognized industry-wide as a leader in sustainability and social responsibility. I want to particularly shout out, they're going to have a presence at our NIT event this weekend, which is awesome. They're going to be sponsoring uh, closest to the ping competition. But good folks, founded uh, 1991 out in Fort Collins. Have you ever been to Fort Collins? Never been to Fort Collins. I have had a lot of New Belgian beer, though. Been a big Fat Tire fan for years. Voodoo Ranger, uh, their Juicy Haze. They, they've had their variety packs at at Publix mm-hmm. lately. I know you're a big Publix guy. Well, they have a good like lime lager uh, in that variety pack, which that I, I'm such a sucker for uh, kind of the, the fun flavored lagers. I love a sour, like a Gosa. Um, they've got uh, they've got a really good Belgian wheat right now too, mm-hmm. which is perfect this time of year. Uh, so aside from Fort Collins, they've expanded into Asheville. Have you ever been to Asheville? I have been to Asheville. Love Asheville. Like I would probably move to Asheville. I got to get up there. Uh, they have a new brand called the purest, which is made, uh, with all traceable organic ingredients. It's an easy drinking lager, uh, low alcohol content, actually perfect for the golf course. I found perfect for Sunday evenings, watching golf. When I just need a little bit, uh, especially going into the podcast, right? You just need a little, take the edge off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the purest is is very good for that. So uh, check out, you can check out their website, newbelgium.com. Uh, they have a beer locator there. You can check out uh, where their brands are available in your area. We thank them very much for sponsoring this episode of the Trap Draw. Actually, I want to shout out their barbecue sauce too. Please. They've got barbecue, they got really good barbecue sauce. Unbelievable. Enjoy using that. There's like three or four different flavors, and uh, that's that's not even part of that. <laughs> I just use their barbecue sauce. How about that? Um, all right, cool. Well, thank them, and now we'll kick it to Mr. Jeezy. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mr. Jeezy. Tron, we've got a lot going on this week. Uh, 
H Town. H Town. New course. We're not going to talk about the course, but new course. <laughs> Folks want to research that it's on a their collab own. Collab between the Dokito and uh, Mr. Brooks Kepka. Yeah. Noted architecture <laughs> enthusiast. Um, prelude to the Masters, of course. Yeah. Randy, have you ever been to Houston before? I have never been to Houston. I don't even think I've flown through Houston. I fly through Houston. I've probably thrown, flown through Houston in the last 18 months. I've probably flown through Houston two or three dozen times because I'm, I'm a you're, United You're guy, huge. Right? You're so deep in United right now. They've got right a now. great terminal at United. Now they've got a, like their, their regional terminal sucks, but they've got great food and beverage offerings there. But I've actually never left the airport before. I've only, like it's so weird because I've been in Houston so many times, but I've never actually been to Houston. Maybe maybe there isn't. Maybe at the airport's all there is. I, well, I, well, I don't know. Well, they have two airports. If you have two airports, do you have one? <laughs> and that's a great question. Uh, I feel like you've already met the, the most famous person living in Houston. Nate the Great? Nate the Great, yeah. which yeah. You know, we, we touched on. But certainly, if anybody needs a little positivity and in their life. And we're talking about going to Houston for the U.S. Women's Open. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll have to see what fun stuff to do. I, w- I would love to go to... One, just to get to Houston, and two, to see the the women play the U.S. Open. That'll be fun. Um, yeah. Other than that, it's it's a it's a city that you know stereotypically I, I kind of think of as just big and sprawling and soulless. But I'm always shocked talking to people that it, they say it's got a lot more culture and there's so there's so much money character. There. They've got great food scene, great like uh, symphony, opera. Yeah. Art museums. I, I would so never many guess doctors, that. And it's like a truly international city. So uh, it's it's a blind spot for me as far as not having spent time there and somewhere I do want to spend time. I actually talked to Spencer Hall about that when we were out in Phoenix a couple of years ago. Mm. He was like, I know nothing about Phoenix, <laughs> even though it's this massive city. And then I was like, dude, I feel the same way with Houston. And yeah. The Bourdain episode was great on Houston. Yeah. All that. So. Well, let's, we'll put Houston to the side for a little bit. We'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, where, where do we want to start we got a lot of topics. I, I guess I maybe we should start first and foremost with zero mea culpas from Southern California episode. We are mea culpa-less. The people said we, we, we were phenomenal. It. We couldn't have done a better job. I think we covered everything completely uh, 100% accurately, which yeah. was... L.A. food scene, you know, talked about all sorts of stuff. Covered every neighborhood in the entire, the entire Southern California metropolis really talked through the dynamics of the the history of the city and and how the the melding of cultures and everything uh just couldn't have been a better episode from our standpoint a very very good friend of ours colleague of ours sent uh sent me uncle juice's number i haven't gotten a working number i think so oh my god i haven't gotten up the the uh the courage to we, we, reach out we gotta get some drinks in you one night yeah. and uh and give that thing a go. I've got Juice's number and I got Pac-Man's number. I can't wait to reach out <laughs> to both of them. So. Oh boy. Uh Pac-Man had himself a little week on on the Instagram stories. He's so pissed at the at the Bengals defensive coordinator and special teams coach. In their ass. Because they you know, they switched their scheme up. You can't be having Gino play over the what, what do you say over the play is play, play over the play center two technique or play, I know. you know that's that's you're not gonna win games like that exactly <laughs> i 
I don't know why he's so in the ass of the special teams guy. I, I get the defense. The defense has been horrible most of the year. Special teams guy's been there for a while, right? Uh, yeah, he's like an institution. And from everything I read, he's kind of well-respected around the league. But They do have the, the fat kicker formerly from Houston. <sighs> Randy Bullock, of yeah. course. Yeah. Who he's having a pretty, you know, he's having a pretty decent year. Surprise! Our buddy THG calls him the FFK, the fat, the fat F kicker. <laughs> Speaking of our friend THG, uh, we just learned that his girlfriend and his and, girlfriend's and, and sister, sister installed a bidet in one of his toilets at his new house. He bought a new house in Cincinnati. She she installed these these two ladies who we have yet to meet. They won't meet us. They, they passed they, through Florida a couple weeks ago. Exactly. They ducked us. And they said, you know what? We're not stopping on our way back to Ohio from Sarasota. What, said, and we what? had to beg THG just to have his girlfriend uh, allow us to follow her on Instagram. She she blocked me. She blocked you? She didn't block me. Was like, on you know. You decoupled she off of Instagram? <laughs> she unfollowed me from her. So, <laughs> THG, we're worried about you, man. THG. Oh, man. Um Big Formula One race. Should we go? Should we go there first? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, Do you have anything you want to say? I'd like to apologize again on behalf oh of Lance Stroll gosh. and on, on behalf of you know supporting Lance Stroll. Um, is just, is it over? It's just not a good look. Are you withdrawing your support? I, I, no, I'm going to see. You know, he 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 had the vid. He did. Right? Have, so he's still yeah. recovering from the vid. He had the vid. Uh, maybe a lot of people are saying it hasn't been the same since having the exactly. Vid. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I think you should be apologizing for McLaren. Yet another relatively well. Weak two showing. races ago, Lance, you know, assassinated Lando Norris. Totally took him out. Scummy move. Uh, so I won't apologize for two races ago. Listen, last race was fine. They, you know, two. They, I think they both finished in the points. Obviously, not as high as they would have wanted, but it was it was fine. It was fine. Daniel Ricciardo, uh, really good stretch here. I know. And it's then, exciting um, as he as he moves to McLaren next year. All, like big big news on my end is just AlphaTauri. I mean, uh, they're just getting <sighs> in people's asses. How Dan- plucky are they? Daniel Cavat was, uh, yeah, you know, with uh, on the heels of Pierre's qualifying P four, I think Cavat uh, finished P four, which was uh, which was good. And then I, yeah, really tough scene for for our boy George. Oh my god, absolutely gutted for George. He was in the points. It was uh, there. He had a great qual. First of all, he got out of Q1 in qualifying, uh, put up a really good effort in Q2. Of course, didn't make it out, and then was in the points, right behind the safety car. You know what? Eight, ten laps left in the race, and put it right in the wall, trying to warm up his tires. Hate to see it, Albon definitely out at Red Bull. I mean, what a disgrace. Yeah. So where do you think they go? People are saying Sergio Perez. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think if I'm them. You know, the last couple of years have, have not gone well going with youthful drivers, right? I feel like Sir, Perez is much more, I guess, safe is one word. Like, he's very consistent, right? And maybe putting him in a Red Bull, he's certainly not better than Verstappen, but maybe that's, they just want like a steadying, very consistent. At, at some point, it just makes, it just like looks bad. That like, if you just would have kept Daniel Ricciardo around, like, in a pretty good spot. Or shit, if they would have kept Gasly around, right? Do you yeah. think he would have? And maybe not. You know, maybe this is what Pierre needed. But yeah, I mean, Ricardo. It sounded like the Pierre relationship with the engineers and all that was kind of fraught. It, yeah, and at least from watching the Drive to Survive, which is of course where I, the only source of my F one knowledge, it seemed like Ricardo One was a little to bit. Get out, out he of needed a new scene because it was like everything was going towards Verstappen. 
Uh, so where are we off to next for F1? We, we're going, uh, I believe we're going to Turkey. Yeah. Turkey, get, then, then, then a back-to-back. A, a in, double in, uh, in Bahrain. Bahrain. And then we're ending it uh, in the Middle East. Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Um, <laughs> what a stretch. Well, good stuff. Uh, gosh, what else What else has been going on? What are you burning on anything football-wise? Uh, watched a little bit of the game last night. I thought um, we had a little mini gronkening. Um, I still can't believe the Bucks signed Antonio Brown. Wiggle. Bad what, guy. Bad guy. Bad guy. Uh, Daniel Jones, Daniel Jones is terrible. Yeah. Oh my god, that's the first time I've really watched him. I watched like half of the fourth quarter. And I was like, this guy's awful. I watched Tua on I was Sunday. Kind of, before we get to Tua, I was kind of underwhelmed by the Bucks too. I know they lost uh, Vita Vey or whatever. That, that like he's an absolute monster. Yeah. Um, and you know they've they've got some dogs at linebacker, but the Giants were running the ball down their throat in the first half. I tell you who I like on the Giants. Darius Slayton. The sleigh wagon. He he should have had a buck fifty and two scores last night. He's 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 Daniel spry. Jones hit I think him, we though. can officially say he's spry. For sure. He's got some wiggle. But so Tua <laughs> Tua's terrible. He's awful. He's t- he's not good. It it was completely underwhelming. Uh I mean he got crowned by his defense and special teams. The the Dolphins as a as a group played a great game, but Did you watch any of the Sunday night game? Um Remind remind Cowboys, me who was playing. Uh, oh God, no, 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 no. Cowboys Eagles it was awful. <laughs> I was avoiding that. How the Cowboys like haven't brought in the cucumber yet? Oh, like me. Jerry looked. I did see some highlight. Like Jerry looks despondent up there in the box. <laughs> he he's just too proud to bring in the cucumber. Um, no, I was watching the Raven Steelers. Just a classic Raven Steelers. You know, brawl. Are you, are you worried at all that Lamb Lamb might stink? Lamb Lamb does not look as electric as last year. I think teams, I, I, I can't decide. Ronnie Stanley being out for the year is going to. At least he got his money. Good. At least yeah. he got his money. I hope I hope he got a lot of, a lot of guaranteed. I, I can't figure out if like the Ravens are stubbornly trying to make Lamb Lamb more of a just drop back quarterback. And save him and keep him healthy. Or if defenses are dictating he'd be more of a drop back quarterback but he does not look as dynamic as as he did last year certainly um and then and when he is just a drop back quarterback that ravens offense is very boring purpose yeah yeah they they're you quickly kind of realize they don't have many weapons today's trade deadline day i'm hoping the falcons make a couple deals i I want to say one more thing though from sunday and i'm ready to say it i told my brother-in-law i think joe burrow's one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL right now. I'm with you. He's it, a dog. It's unbelievable. And so your brother-in-law, I was like, like at some point he needs. He's coming down this week for for the NIT. He needs to apologize on behalf of AJ Green. <laughs> Do you think maybe AJ gets traded today? Outside chance. It's one of the worst contracts in the league. Another. Right you know they have John Ross, who they wasted like a top ten yeah. pick on. He's just you know languishing on the bench. Hopefully they trade him for everybody's sake. Um. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think um, very curious to see like what the Texans do. Speaking of Houston, yeah, like what a bad spot they're in. Like they 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 can't tank because they don't even own their picks. Right. I feel like at least they have a quarterback though. Like I still I, I like Watson. I think he's a good quarterback. So you have that piece at least. Yeah, but he's like he's going to get expensive. Right. So it kind of 
it's not as valuable as it otherwise would be. But at least in terms of, I'm trying to think of a, you know, like a, another t- a similar being, situation, like, like the Giants a, or the Jets, even the Niners of like they've they've got. Uh, I love like I love their roster. Fred Warner is probably one of my favorite players to watch in the entire league. Kittle, they got dogs in the D line, all that stuff. Uh, you know, Sh- Shanny. We can talk about Shanny in a sec here, but. Even that, like, what's you know, what are they going to do quarterback wise? I mean, they can't do anything this year, right? They, they, I think the Falcons need to cut Matt Ryan, and he needs to go out with Shanny on a discount out in San Francisco. Well, I definitely agree. The Falcons need to start thinking about who their next quarterback is. Uh, I would love to see Matt Ryan in a situation like San Francisco because I think I, I was a little disappointed. I texted you, Shanny doesn't seem to be quite as QB agnostic, maybe. As I was hoping, Shaney's a genius, but, but he is, play. yeah. Well, I mean, we're gonna see what he what he can do with Nick Mullins again. Um, is Beathard hurt? I, I don't know if he's hurt, but I thought Mullins was the backup. Well, he was, and then they benched him for for <laughs> Beathard a few weeks ago. It might and just be Beathard came in. Uh, yeah. Um, as far as the the guys to to look at, you know, obviously Trevor Lawrence, but. That Ohio State. Oh my fields, gosh! I'm so glad you said he's that. I did watch a lot of that game. Terrible. Like he's he. I was far more impressed by Dwayne Haskins, and I was never a fan of Dwayne Haskins. Amen. And I was then than I was of Fields. Fields, he just seemed. I I don't know. It just seemed very mechanical, very slow. He he didn't strike me as dynamic against Penn State. He looks like a a Bob Griffin the third without as much speed with a longer stride. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'm just with you where like, he looks like a system quarterback. I don't know other way to, I think I'm probably not smart enough football wise like, to describe it, but he just looks like a system quarterback. Watching college football these days. Like I kind of feel like, like I don't even really watch it anymore because I feel like the coaches are just playing video games on the fucking sidelines. They are. None of the quarterbacks are even making their own reads. Right. I God, there's nothing I hate more than uh, the get up to the line, look over at the coach, and then like get your read, and then it's just like I have one one read, and if he's not open, I'm like running or I'm throwing it away. That's why I love Burrow. Exactly. Yeah, or Mahomes, for that matter. I mean, it's just, it's just like the, just the pocket presence. Like three, four, five check that. Like it's it's a true progression. Yeah. It's it's the the pocket presence is and honestly that's I don't know I I like to pretend I'm like you know this great QB scout but but a guy like you could tell when Roethlisberger was in college he, he was like he just played above and beyond whatever system Miami was running whereas like he he would create four five six seven seconds in the pocket or like he he was just above and beyond. Everything else on the field. That was how Russell Wilson was too. It's like he's not. Yeah. That's why I think the one guy that I totally whiffed on pre-draft, Justin Herbert. Like I did not see this coming at all. I, I, Granted, I just didn't watch him at all. I love his weaponry. Love, yeah. I love Keenan. Huge Keenan's Keenan. a dog. Um, a little nevish, but he is a good receiver. <laughs> but it, you know, it's just like I. I was thinking, God, this guy, like, just total. Yeah, he's got all the measurables and all that, and he's just going to be a complete flame-out bust. And I got to watch the Chargers. I, I didn't watch them much at Oregon, and I haven't watched the Chargers. I mean, at some point, like, that, they managed to lose again this week. Like They've blown, what, like four straight leads? Yeah, of Anthony Lynn's got to be. <laughs> points. Got to be gone. Um, yeah. 
I, but that's going back to Fields. Like that's just what I see with Fields is he's very much just within that system. Like he he doesn't do anything above and beyond I that just system. Remember, and at Ohio State, it's like they have such an like yeah. decided schematic advantage where like you can make anybody look good there. They got some good receivers this year too. Oh, yeah. got yeah, they're talented. Begrudgingly admit they're talented. Um, gosh. All right. So let's talk. Anything else on the? Uh. Anything current events you want to hit? You reading anything right now? Uh, I just finished. I was woefully behind on our Refuge book club, uh, but I just finished a selection, two selections ago, one selection ago, called Eileen by Otessa Mosfe, I believe is. I might be mispronouncing that name. I, I don't know how I feel about it, but okay. I did read it. <laughs> um, yeah, I got I to find a new book, though, to start. I got two going right now. I got the the Outlaw Ocean okay. by Ian Urbina. Okay, it's like this, I don't know that it, one. It's, it's all about it's a nonfiction, all about these the the, uh, the it's like all these kind of essays almost, and they're all they're not self contained. They all talk to each other a little bit, but uh, it's all this reporting on kind of like the the world of the ocean, like so global trade, mm. piracy. <sighs> Know your big piracy. Fan. Yeah, all all sorts of that shit. Like you know, uh, like the first chapter is is all about um, that Norwegian or Swedish like Greenpeace boat that went down to like Antarctica and was messing with those like illegal fishermen. <laughs> I didn't really hear about that. Oh man, it's sick. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I'll give it to you after I finish. Okay. And, and then I, and then I just started Wright's book too. Oh, nice. You know what? That, uh, that Thank you for reminding me. That's actually, yeah, I need to read that. Um, he mailed us a copy, so th- I think that's what I'll read uh, now, actually. And uh, then, uh, yeah, and then I got some Chuck short ribs to throw on the... Oh, uh, beautiful. On the, I'm going to grill them. I'm not going to smoke them. I'm just going to straight up grill them. Okay. Cut them off the bone. We'll go from there. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, uh, you know... As as always, we we efforted a lot of people for this episode. A ton of people. Ton um, of people. it's amazing. We we just can't get our first our first picks to to say yes. I think one of these days we might get a first pick to say yes. I think your pick was probably probably Joel Osteen, right? Of course, of course, that's where I wanted to go. Um, would have loved to have talked for an hour about the prosperity gospel. He was too busy. He was trying to shut all his doors uh, to the to the poor and needy of Houston. Here there was a hurricane down in the Gulf. (laughs) He was too busy boarding everything up. Um, I I know you were bummed about not getting Osteen. Did you, where'd we go after that? Tillman Fertitta. Yeah, he was too busy hiring a new coach. Yeah, busy week for them. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, Andy Dalton, you know, also I know I'm a big, big Andy Dalton fan. He had actually said yes, but then he got, he got dinged up. We could go and just went. Concussed. Yeah, he was concussed. So we. He's in the protocol. He's in the protocol, so we couldn't we couldn't make that happen. Um, you know, I think it would be reckless of us not to ask uh, the Bush family, anybody, George. Jab exclamation point. <laughs> uh, you know, we we would have taken anybody from from that realm. Craig James, but he's dealing with some. <laughs> Has the law caught up to him yet? Some legal or you know <laughs> civil issues is, with regard to uh, you know some some uh, dead uh, a handful of people. He may <laughs> have had something to uh, Howard Hughes didn't didn't realize he was from Houston. Oh yeah, tried to, tried to get him on the blower. He was he was not available. Didn't return our calls. He was holed up somewhere. Tara Lipinski 
Mm. Uh, the big donkey, Adam Dunn. That would have been the Dunna. Yeah. God. Could have uh, asked him about his longest home run he ever hit was off Jose Lima. It was Lima time. It was Lima. Lima was playing for the Dodgers at the time, but of course. Lima actually pitched for the Astros exactly. for a while too, right? Exactly. Uh, Paul Wall, Slim Thug. Chameleonaire. I think we would have taken any of those. Uh, I know Mike, one of your favorite Mike actresses, Jones. Anna Nicole Smith. Oh, my gosh. One of your favorite actresses, uh, Renee Zellweger. Oh, my gosh. Love everything she's in. Uh, uh, another great actress, uh, Jennifer Garner. Uh, I know you love her in the Capital One commercials. I, I, I mean, I've been to Capital One cafes just because of her. I will say this. She's, it, she's my least favorite brand spokesperson on any platform anywhere. I will say this. Uh, I grew up in an alias household. We were we were fans of the sh- me and, you know me and the old man were fans of the alias show. An alias household. That sounds like something that you guys. Would, <laughs> no, it was a good show. Like you didn't know who your dad really was. No, 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 no. She was. You know, it was it was a fun show for a while. That and um, God, we loved. Uh, uh, oh God, what, what's the Fox show with Scolder and, and Molly? I can't believe oh, I'm X-Files. drawing a blank. X Files. Never watched. Huge X Files. Yeah, huge X Files house too. Um, Beyonce. Yeah, of course. Beyonce. Queen B. Uh, I think also you've got. Uh, I didn't realize Jeff Bezos mm. from Houston. Gosh, we, you know his publicist never called us back. <laughs> um, I've seen there Dan Rather from Houston. Tell you what, I actually, you know what, you know what I did watch the other day. I watched the uh, the Netflix documentary on. Uh, it's a three parter on the Challenger space disaster. Was it good? It was really good. I didn't realize like just how much, how much NASA knew, they were, and when they knew it. They were kind of playing fast and loose. Uh, yeah, because they were under like they were trying to get their budget renewed, and there was a lack of you know there was a big delay, and like they were supposed to have had so many launches by this point, and they'd had so yeah. many less launches, and there was just more or less a, a uh, kind of a general lack of momentum at NASA, and they needed you know so they, so so then they started you know I didn't realize all the backstory of like when they started. Um, you know, pulling some of the the people who weren't astronauts, like when the you know, like the, like the teacher was, yeah, on, and like yeah. that had nothing to do with it crashing or anything like that. But that was just made it that much more sad. And then, right, right, uh, the guy from South Carolina, like it just you know, like who I never realized um, his name astronaut um, McNair. I never realized like so there, there's a McNair High School in Atlanta. I never realized it was named for him. Hmm. So like remarkable dude. Um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, um, well, speaking of documentaries or or docu series, I finished Waco on Netflix the other week. Uh, our boy David Koresh was actually from oh, Houston. No, your boy, <laughs> not my boy. You said he had many good ideas. No. Um, Mary Kay Cosmetics. Mary Kay is from Houston. Yeah, uh, Marianne Williamson, who I know you're disappointed wasn't on the uh, presidential ballot, but. Lots of good ideas there. Um, yeah, but going back to the documentary, the, the front, the um, the American, ex- I think it was a front line on Waco, and then the American experience on Ruby Ridge, Oklahoma Ridge. City, oh, okay. and Ruby yeah, Ridge, yeah. and it all kind of talks back to Waco. Really interesting. Gotcha. Uh, Hillary Duff. Mm, of course, Houston. of course. Ted Cruz, your boy, unequivocally your boy. <laughs> um, and then you know, I think lastly, a guy that's not from Houston, but down there right now i think we appreciate everything he's about dana holgerson of course holgo labs of course god i forgot he was in houston yeah yeah 
Um, yeah, couldn't get any of them, man. I know you're a big Astros fan. A huge Astros fan. Love the Astros. Uh, Lance Berkman would have been great to talk to. Lance Berkman, one of my probably my favorite fantasy baseball player of all time. You were a big Jeff Bagwell guy. I think oh, you I always said you those. loved no. his goatee. Bagwell, Biggio, and uh, who was the third one? The Killer Bees. Uh, well, it was Berkman for a little while, but it was originally, I think, our boy Derek Bell. Derek Bell. Operation, Operation. Shutdown. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, who did we get? So we got a guy who is uh grew up in houston not from houston wasn't born in houston but spent a significant amount of time in houston um a guy who you are blocked by on twitter yeah which was news to me <laughs> until i think last year and you're like god did you see bomani's tweet i'm like no i didn't see it yeah why didn't i see it oh because i'm blocked and, so, I, and i went back and i looked and you know i was blocked i've only tweeted him one time it was a it was a Cam Newton. It's about I'm not sure what his tweet was, but um, but I just said, Bomani, like people ain't reaching. Like one, he's an idiot. Two, he's selfish. Three, he's a thief, <laughs> which he is a thief. He stole like you know, he stole a laptop. And then four, the Superman thing is dumb. This was in 2015. You gotta remember, this was this was pre-COVID. It was a whole different this world. Was January fourth, 2015. Scam was still playing for the for the Panthers. I'm a Falcons fan, of course. Emotions were running high. Uh, well, so it's Bomani Jones. We're going to talk to him. Uh, currently works for ESPN. You can catch his, I love his podcast, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Uh, when he gets talking basketball, especially, but I think he's just got really sharp insights um, into all sports, but but also the human condition. Um, you see him regularly on Highly Questionable. He makes a lot of appearances on Dan Lebitard's show, that whole universe. Um, and then also, you know, sometimes around the horn, outside the lines, just uh, doing a lot of things over at ESPN. So that's an interesting, uh, like, educational resume. Yeah, I know. I want to I w- I get into that a little bit. Um, econ guy. And then, you know, I believe was going the PhD route. I don't know exactly what happened, but um, all in Clark Atlanta, and then Claremont, and then uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So yeah, you know, and then pivoted, and I think he was first the music critic, and then got into sports journalism, radio hosting. Uh, I'd love to see you guys get deep into <laughs> economic theory and start talking about... <laughs> Got to ask him if he's a, an efficient market guy or not, uh, if he's a Chicago schooler. Unfortunately, I have to... But you're going to drop off. Which, not yeah, I'm not getting back down or <laughs> like that. I can see you painting it like that. Of course. For the record, I'm not getting of back course. down. My wife has a doctor's appointment, so I got to I gotta run and, and watch, watch the little five-week-old. And then... Uh, and then pick a friend up at the airport. So Perfect. Well, I'm going to talk to Bomani a little later today. I will send him your best regards. I will ask if he can unblock you. And tell him I, I love Cam now. And we've come all the way around on Cam. His outfits are so outrageous, and he's so – he's He just makes me laugh. He's <laughs> the best. Yeah, he's the best. And, um, and now he's with the hoodie. It's Life is good right now. I wish they were wounding someone. Like, I wish – I hate the Patriots, but now that Brady's gone, like I'm, I'm a massive hoodie fan. So I, I wish the Patriots were having the success, and and Brady was struggling. They need to blow it up, vice versa. You know, they need to take their licks as far as cap stuff goes, and yeah, you know, build towards. It's gonna be a sad day though when the hoodie retires. Yeah, they've yeah. whiffed on a lot of draft picks lately too. Barnwell had a good. 
good piece on ESPN.com yesterday about it. I don't know if he's going to want to go through a whole rebuild. But anyway, all right, we'll, we'll get you out here, and uh, we'll get to our my, my conversation with Bomani Jones. Hey, guys, Randy here. Before we get to my interview with Bomani Jones, I want to quickly thank our other sponsor for today's episode, Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered you are, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from both workouts and just normal stressors. I've been wearing mine for over five months. I've said it before. I'm amazed how seamlessly it's it's kind of just be, become a part of my routine and, and quite literally uh, my body. It's a very comfortable band. I wear it on my left wrist. Uh, you keep it on 24-7. It's waterproof. There's a little battery pack that you can slide over it to recharge it uh, once or twice a week when it when it needs to. And then through their app, you can do all sorts of different things. Besides tracking sleep, which I find really interesting, uh, night to night, uh, it, it tracks your strain, which again is you know, workouts and, and just your everyday stressors. You, you can get a good gauge on how much strain you're putting on your body. The other thing that I, I really enjoy and I find interesting, uh, each day you can set up a journal and it's customizable with all different types of questions. But essentially each morning you answer these journal questions. And then at the end of the month, Whoop sends a monthly performance assessment. And this allows you to track the decisions you make day to day. And you can clearly see what impact those choices have on, again, on your recovery, on your sleep, on your strain. Right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code TRAPDRAW at checkout. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code TRAPDRAW, and you save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with WHOOP today. Many thanks to them for sponsoring this episode, and now on to Bomani Jones. Well, joining me now on the phone, uh, a person I've I've long admired. I love their podcast, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Uh, You can catch that wherever you get your podcasts. He does a number of things on ESPN, uh, including... Outside the lines, uh, he's very involved in the Dan Lebitard universe, um, around the horn, probably a lot of other things I'm, I'm missing, Bomani, but my guest is Bomani Jones. Thank you so much for joining. How are you today? Dude, I'm doing all right, man. How about you? Good, good. You know, just another normal Tuesday, right? Not, not much going on today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Look, I'm, I am keeping myself as narrowly focused on other things until I don't have to be, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I'm already planning. Okay, uh, when I get done working, I think I'm just going to go for a nice long walk outside. Just just try to distract myself as much as possible. Um, I, I appreciate you making time. Uh, you are our Houston expert. And I got to admit, right from the top, I, I, I'm going to sound like a complete neophyte because I have never been to Houston. So um, please... Please take that into consideration. Uh, but let me let me start here. What um, I, I know you weren't born in Houston, but could you lay out kind of uh, when you got to Houston and, and and what Houston means to you? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Houston. We moved to Houston from Atlanta right before I turned seven, and I left right before I turned seventeen. So if you ask me where I'm from, I always say um, that I am from Houston. And it's an interesting thing because I don't even know so much how much I realized like that I was from Houston while I was there as much as it quickly hit me after I left. Like, no, 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 no. 
I am from a place where they do things a little bit differently, right? <laughs> like this is this is this this is one of those. And now it's kind of wild, like looking back on Houston and having a bit of a like more adult understanding of what it is and like what it's evolved into. Like now it's the most diverse city in America, which is something I didn't really think that much about at the time while I was there. But then I start comparing it to other places I've been, and I'm like, no, nah, that adds up. That's interesting. Can I pull on that thread a little bit? In retrospect, what's what are some of the things that made it so unique? Uh, looking back on it, and and I, I guess how how have those things maybe changed in Houston? Yeah, so I have lived outside of living in Houston. I lived in Atlanta. I lived in North Carolina for ten years. I live in New York City now. I lived in Miami um, for about four years, and I did two years in Southern California. And one thing that is interesting to look back on about Houston, not so much as a comparison to like Southern California, but like definitely compared to Atlanta and Durham, those places I lived is the Latino influence, specifically the Mexican influence. Like I remember when I first moved, got to Houston and I was very young, but I could recognize that they were calling everybody who was Latin Mexican. And I was like, wow, that seems to be a little bit presumptuous. And I mean, it was kind of presumptuous, right? <laughs> but the population was very much so largely Mexican in a way that I kind of sort of, I think, almost took for granted until I started moving to some other places. And not simply that Houston has a, a, a big Mexican population, but the Mexican population, like, it's clear it's there. They're not, like, pushed off to the shadows in any way or any sort of way. Like, I don't find it to be an assimilationist in that way. Like, they are, if, if you look at your city that you live in as being black and white, you cannot do that with Houston. You just can't be binary um about what it is so that's like one thing i realized after i left the other thing that i realized about houston after leaving is it is a city with a lot of town-like qualities to it and i don't mean that in a bad way but i mean that if you if you are in any particular place in houston at one time you don't necessarily know or feel like you are in the fourth largest city in america right but if you were like looking over it like on a google map sort of way and you kept tapping the minus button to zoom out now and now, and you realize, oh my God, this thing, is, I mean, this thing is ginormous the farther you go away. But like, it's, to me, I've always said, it is the perfect place for you to go if like you are living in some rural location and you don't really have a problem with living in a rural location. You just like there to be more restaurants and the stuff to stay open later, right? <laughs> Houston is the town for you. I, I believe looking online, you grew up in, Wall, in uh, Waller, Texas. Is that right? No, I grew up in uh, the northwest suburbs of Houston. I went to school in Waller because my parents started Prairie View A&M University, which is the next town over to Waller. Okay. So I went to school out there. Yeah, this is always a great uh, source of, of confusion when I try to explain this to people. <laughs> that, no, I, that I grew up in Houston, but I went to school out there because logically it doesn't make sense to people, which I totally get. But the other part of it is because Houston is so giant, if you are from the south side of Houston, the Houston that I'm from, might as well be Waller as far as they're concerned. It's 45 minutes or an hour away, right? Like, yeah. like for people from the south side of Houston, everything on the <laughs> north side is, is, is the bad land. It's the hinterland. It's, like, it, it, it's a world that doesn't exist to them. And, and so then as far as, um, you know, I, I'm just thinking, gosh, age 7 to 17, that's like the, the prime formative years. Did you latch on? Because I know you <laughs> – well, I, I know that you've recently quit the uh, the Falcons narcotic, but did you have allegiance to any of the of the Houston sports teams growing up there at that time? No. Well, no, because we got there. I was just <clears throat> old enough that I had the teams from Atlanta when we moved there. And on top of it, this is the mid-'80s. 
So you could still watch the Braves every day if you had cables. They were on Channel 17. Sure. You could still watch the Hawks if you so wanted to because their games were also on TBS, right? So that I didn't have to give up the team to come there. But University of Texas football, that one I caught on to and that one I still hold on to. Okay. All right. Um, well, I want to get into a few of those later. But but let me ask you this just for – for listeners who I may not be as familiar with you, one of the things I find most fascinating with you, and it, it doesn't really apply to Houston specifically, but I, I love, uh, as somebody who's taken a bit of a meandering career path myself, I, I love the path that you've taken. And I'm always very interested in, you know, you were you were somewhat on your way to, to getting a PhD, and I know you've done um, uh, some teaching at the at the collegiate level too. Can you kind of lay out how you even got into sports journalism? Yeah, so um, my senior year of college, I got the bright idea to start freelance writing. It's important to note that I had a serious misunderstanding about how lucrative that was, and not even lucrative. I thought it was something <laughs> that you could just kind of live on. And I remember I was talking to a guy once, um, is at the end of the year 2000. And he was like, I'm so excited. He was doing his taxes. And he was like, I made $10,000 freelancing this year. I'm like, 10000 huh? Like, like that's all? Like, it never dawned on me these people had other jobs and everything like that. So I was like, oh, okay. So I want to be a writer. That's cool. But I'm going to need to figure something else out because this is not a your only job kind of job. I just totally misunderstood what that was. Okay, cool. Um, and so I graduated from college in 2001 and I did not have a job. I didn't really know what it was that I wanted to do other than write. I needed to figure something out. I spent the summer basically doing nothing. And then I wound up, um, out of nowhere going to graduate school in California, like out there on like two week notice. But that was cool because I was doing a lot of entertainment writing at the time. And so LA was a good place to be. Um, but in that time, a friend of mine met Ralph Wiley at a book signing and he connected us and we kind of established a bit of a friendship. And I remember a story had come out. Uh, this young man was having some legal troubles in Georgia and he sent an email out about it. I remember it was an email to me and, wife, and Michael Wilbon, right? Like it was just wild to me that I was on the same email as Michael Wilbon. This is 2004. And I replied to him and said, hey, man, but if you want to write something about this, I got some contacts in the attorney general's office because I worked there for a summer. Just let me know. And then the next day, I got an email from ESPN.com's page two, and they were not asking me for my contact. They were asking me if I could write a story. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> right? Cool. Yeah. I had never even really considered writing about sports for a living at that point because I didn't know how you got in. Like, I had no idea the path that you went on in order to get that done. Like, when I was writing the freelance stuff I was doing, I was writing about music and stuff um, for various internet publications, but this wasn't. The internet for sports wasn't formed in such a way where I could find a way to get on, like I could get on at the other place, right? Like just, it just didn't go that way. But now I was in the door at ESPN. And so that really was how it wound up starting. And about a year and a half later, I got what I, you know, what you would consider to be a preferred freelancer's sort of status there, where they basically treat you like you work there, but don't pay you like you work there. You know, 15 years ago, so I can say that. Um, you know, and so, you know, we did that, but I wound up getting on the payroll there. And then from there, started doing radio, did some internet stuff, got on TV, but that was really, that's really how we wound up getting there. I'm, I'm trying to think how to frame this question, but I, I'm, I'm curious, did, did you think it would be rewarding enough to talk about sports? And I guess, you know, you do a lot of talking about life, uh, through the lens of sports. 
has it been a struggle to find that that reward strictly through sports? I, hopefully, that question makes sense. I, I'm just yeah, no, because you could have gone sense. in so it many different sense. directions. Yeah, I will say this: the other directions wouldn't have been nearly as much fun, and I don't know yeah. how rewarding that would have been, right? Um, yeah. No, I've, I've actually, I've actually not struggled with the reward part, and I do think that part of it is what you touched on. Is so like when I first started doing this, I didn't have access, right? Like I was not around things in that way to be able to. I was not going to be able to differentiate myself strictly on insights and strictly on like nuts and bolts sports. That wasn't that wasn't going to work. There were other people that were better positioned to be able to do that. Like, I feel like if I had been a beat writer or something like that, I could have done that very well, but that wasn't what I was doing. And as my life went on, I wasn't in a position to like, I'm going to go do this now. Like that wasn't, that wasn't the play for me. The play for me was always going to be, or at least it was early was to figure out ways to use sports to talk about other things or to use other things to then talk about sports. And so that part, I guess was rewarding enough. But the other thing was, as I was doing that, and in this era where you could have a much more uh, intimate relationship with the people who consume your content, I was very much aware that people appreciated um, what I was doing. And then over the years, I've had like interesting conversations with people about different things. Like once I was talking to Ta-Nehisi Coates about doing sports, and he made the point that I am able in sports to express ideas that a lot of those people would never hear otherwise. Right. Like they would yeah. not take themselves to the places where they could hear some of those things. And so sports allows me to do that on top of the fact that I still really, really, really enjoy sports. Like I have not reached that point that a lot of other people get to in this business where they're just so terribly bored with talking about sports. I mean, like there's a certain paint by numbers element that you get with some of the topics, but just generally speaking, I don't know when it's going to be that I'm just looking at this like I can't believe I'm still talking about this stuff. No, because I'd be talking about this stuff for free if I wasn't doing it for money. <laughs> what are you season by season? I so I, I'll always say I, you know I, I think one of the things that I just cannot relate to. I was a I, basketball was my main sport growing up, so it's I always like I, I fight a little bit imposter. It's it's very. Um, just weird how it works out that I'm like working in the golf space now because I never played competitive golf. You know, it just, it, it's very weird. We found a niche there, but basketball was my thing. Uh, I played a couple of years in college and, but, but I just feel for kids who now it seems like they have to just specialize and concentrate year round because I was definitely a season by season guy. I, I played soccer in the fall. I played basketball in the winter. I love playing baseball in the spring. Um, is that how you are or is there, are there certain sports that, you know, it's like, man, this is, this is my love. This, this is what I'm locked into. Yeah. I enjoy basketball more than I enjoy the other sports just because basketball does not take itself that damn seriously. Yeah. <laughs> like that's like, especially like observing it at the level that I do now as a sport, it does not take itself that seriously. The people who like basketball, they might see it as an art form, but they don't see it as a religion. Like football has absolutely become a religion, which is a shame because football is still really compelling. And I still find it um, to be very interesting. It just comes with a lot of stuff around it that can get to be a bit exhausting. Now, when I was a kid, baseball was my number one, though. Like that, I enjoyed baseball more than anything else. I mean, a little bit of boy all the way up. Like the way that I love the Braves of those eras, there's nothing that's ever going to top that for me um, in sports. Like that's where I was. But I was, yeah, I'm with you. I never had just like, I'm only paying attention to this one thing. Like I was never in that place. Or even, you know, the little bit that I played, I was never in that space either. Do you enjoy college football as much these days? 
that's that's been the one sport I was a big fan of, you know, as as a kid growing up. And I think it's a combination between I, I've grown very disillusioned with the NCAA and you know the the treatment of high major college athletes. Um, and then I think the style on the field. I, I don't know if that's just me being grumpy older person, but I, I just find it less entertaining, I guess. I, I'm curious how what you think of college football these days. Yeah, this year's been a little bit tricky just because it's so weird, right? It's so weird in every way, and it is, like, directly in front of us, the fair question of, like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> you know, like, it's, yes. hard to, it, it's, hard, it's hard to shake that. Like, Clemson's going to be playing Notre Dame this weekend, and Trevor Lawrence ain't going to be there because he contracted COVID-19. And the whole question was simply, is he going to be out of quarantine in time to play with nobody asking the question? Is he going to be healthy enough in time to play? Like, there's, there's a level that feels gross, and I get I get where people come from where they really start getting disillusioned with the NCAA and just the general state of affairs, and so they don't want to do that anymore. Where that one becomes almost not tricky to me, but it's kind of ironic, is that the corruption is part of what makes this bizarre game so entertaining. <laughs> That, right, like everything that's, so that's everything yeah. that surrounds this. Right, like what I really love about college football is how flat out irrational it is, <laughs> how non-standard it is, how you know the goals of different programs are so different, just kind of based upon who they are. Some programs have absolutely no chance of ever being champions, but they're playing for something different, so that's okay. Um, like there, there are very human elements to it, and like certain political economy elements to it that throw everything together that I find to be interesting and they all come together in one break, in one place. It just so happens that it's all grounded in just something that is indefensible, which is the fact that they refuse to pay market value to these players. Well, yeah, it's, and that's what I suffer from. It's like, once you kind of see how the sausage is made, it, it's just hard for me to, <laughs> to go back. But I, I fully admit that as, as a, yeah. uh, you know, I was a fan of a mid-major college football team that, you know, after a while, you just ask you, well, you know, what are we, what are we really playing for? What am I rooting for? You know, like a like an eight and four season in a in a lower tier bowl, I guess. It, it, I don't know. It just <laughs> it just leaves me wanting a, a little bit. Well, I I say I say this though. The moment that I realized like just how crazy this money stuff is with college football. So you remember when Cam Newton got caught up? Yes, um, yes. And it was and it was a hundred and eighty thousand dollars. It sounded like a giant sum of money, right? $180,000. <laughs> so I was talking to a buddy of mine. He is a economics professor now, but he was also a college football player. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about this. And he was like, think about this. He said, if Mississippi State had gotten Cam Newton, and remember the $180,000 was on the table for Mississippi State, right? Mississippi State walked away from it, but that was what the number was going to be for Mississippi State. And my guy says, Cam Newton had gone to Mississippi State, Mississippi State would have won the national championship. And he is correct. I, I don't think any team that was in the top 25 that year that would have had Cam Newton probably would have won the national championship. And I know that because Auburn won a national championship with him, and they didn't have another player on the team who had an NFL carry or reception. Right? Like, it was a one-man team. And when he made that point, it really landed to me like, wow, $180,000 was a deal. Like, if they got a national championship for $180,000, that's a steal. Oh, that's what I realized. Yeah. Like, we used to get, you know, we used to see guys getting him double $500, over $2,000 or something like that. And this dude was a steal for $180,000.
that's when I was like, oh, okay, we're looking at this all the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, the ROI was it, it was it was too good. I mean, yes. <laughs> It, it kind of reminds me of every time. Uh, right. It, it's, it's, you know, I can get very cynical on the big banks too, but, but it's kind of like the, you know, the, these big banks will get, will get caught for, you know, God knows what kind of infractions and penalties and they'll right. pay the fine and everybody, you know, reads the headline and forgets about it. And it's like, man, it's just good business to kind of bake in that the shady stuff, right? Because more, you know, in the, in the long run, it, it's, it's positive, uh, I, I guess, expected value. <laughs> and Yeah, well, nobody, nobody wants to set the risk calculus in such a way to really put people in a position to say, nah, we're not going to be there. Right. Like, that's the thing. You just have to make, if you make the consequences on the back end so severe that nobody would dream of it. Like, they gave SMU's death penalty that one time, right. and it was too good. And they realized, okay, we can't do this. It actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, oh, okay, well, let me ask you this then. What I, I know you played basketball growing up. Were you a multi-sport guy? Was was, was basketball the, the sport? I, I know you said you really love basketball. It, was that the one you played uh, predominantly as well? No, baseball was the one for me. Okay. Like, that was the one. Like I remember how excited I was. Um, the first time that we went to go sign up to play Little League. It was after we moved to Houston, and I was seven. And uh, in Atlanta, where we lived previously, if you were seven, you got to, like, you know, the, you, you batted against a pitcher if you were seven, right? And I was so excited, and we were there, and then they let me know. They are like, nah, actually, um, seven years old is T-ball. And I remember being bummed out. But I was like a T-ball assassin. Like the thing about one thing about baseball, if you play as a kid, is the smart kids have a real decided advantage. Like if you were a kid watching baseball in the ways that a grown up would, because you knew what to do, right? Like you knew what to do if there was a pop fly. You see what happens? There's a pop fly in this kid's on base (laughs) in little league. They don't know what the hell to do, right? Like everything goes chaos. All right, I had all of that. I knew how to play on the, you know, like that was that was my game. And the other thing was. I'm a grade skipper with a late birthday. And so anything that was done by grade or whatever it was, I wasn't going to have a chance. These kids were just not the same age as me. But baseball went by age, and it was the only time that I was ever like one of the older kids who was playing in the classification. So, boom, I was it, right? Like, that's where I was. So, yeah, baseball was my participatory game. I got into actually playing basketball later than I did with baseball. That's so funny. I can remember damn near fifth, sixth grade, the whole, you know, if, if you're a runner on third base, you, you could you could kind of cheat your way down the line, and when the catcher lollipops a throw back to the pitcher, just take off and, and steal home. Yeah, that, that rings so true yeah, to I me. Yeah, I was a terror. I was <laughs> yeah. a terror. Like, all the bases, I enjoyed nothing more athletically than running the bases. I was like, I could get any base anytime I want to. Just because these kids have no idea what to do. Yeah, God, that's so true. Yeah, um, I I love baseball too, and it is the one sport where it's like, man, you just gotta somehow you gotta get those kids through the first like three or four years until you can actually start making the throws and the pitchers become a little better and, and you know can get the ball over the plate. Uh, it, it turns into a very fun game, but it is a oh, struggle yeah. the, those first few years. L- let's turn back to Houston then a little bit. What would so somebody such as myself who's never been to Houston, 
what do you tell to somebody who's got a weekend to go to Houston? Are, are there sites? Are there restaurants? Are there things they need to check out? Yeah, see, this is interesting because now I've been gone from Houston 23 years, right? So okay. it, it is a little bit different. Now, this is one thing I would say is I am still somebody that tells you to go to Papa Do's if you come to Houston. It is a chain of uh, Louisiana <laughs> seafood yeah. restaurant and look there's a Papa Do's in a few different places like Atlanta's got one whatever it is I'm not even one of those people that's going to tell you in Houston the Papa Do's is better I am going to tell you though in Houston the Papa Do's is more fun right one thing about Houston is Houston is a happy hour city I'm assuming that it's a byproduct of the ridiculous snarling traffic and giant freeway system right <laughs> so like five five to seven the happy hour is always popping in Houston that's the place where that's where it's everybody going. You do all right with a happy hour at Papa Do's. You do all right with a happy hour just about anywhere, like if you wind up in Houston. Like people say we're going to happy hour. Understand, that's the thing. They are going to happy hour. Um, Southsiders always tell you, and they write about this, you ought to go get French fried chicken while you're there. Like that's just one. Like you really want to tell somebody you went to Houston to make them believe that you went there and be like, yeah, somebody told me to go check out Frenchies and I checked it out and it was good. That ain't a bad place for you to start uh, in terms of what you're doing. But, like, sites, like, I don't think of Houston so much as a, like, place to go to see the site. Like, that's not – like, I don't really have any, like, landmark that I would think of off the top of my head that would come out to me as being like, oh, man, that, you know, that, that right there is the place that you need to go. I can't think that. Like, if you were in town and these things weren't so crazy – I'd say to give a walk through the Galleria because it is still a fairly cool place. Uh, I mean, it's a mall, right? Like, you know, I don't want to pretend like it's the most adventurous thing <laughs> in the world. But, uh, you know, but like being over there off West Ham, you can go kick it around there and get you a little something nice to eat. You know, if you like, if you have a bourgeois culture, you can do that. I've also been told that uh, Timber Fertitta Business Hotel called the Post Oak. That is apparently the fanciest, snazziest hotel in the city, right? Everybody tells me it's pretty impressive. So I would say you might want to go do that. Okay. Let me ask you, where, how does Houston rank? You've lived in, I mean, you, you, you told us, you've, you've lived in some of the major metro areas around the country. It's a very pe- personal question to your own preferences, but, but where does Houston rank? Well, here's the thing. I, if you want to look at this from a very adult standpoint, of all these places that I've lived, your money ain't going farther anywhere than it's going in Houston. Okay. Right? Like, yeah. like, like you, you, you take the money you make in New York or whatever it is, you come to Houston. Like, like looking at whatever rent you pay in New York and then looking at what you can get in Houston, <laughs> make you, it, it makes you want to start looking for jobs, right? You get you a plot of land. You probably get you a pool in the backyard if you want to because space is not scarce. Like, that's the biggest thing. Space is not scarce, and it's spread out in such a way that even if you're way far out from downtown, you can still be pretty close to whatever amenities it is that you want, right? That's just, it is a big, sprawling place um, in that way. Like, if I had to pick, pick places to live, I'd probably live in Houston over Miami. The tricky thing with Miami is it's a beach, and it's right there. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's, just, it's just right there all the time, and it makes everything better. No matter how bad your day happens to be, there's a beach there. Um, so like I dig it, I dig it, um, in that way. I also have to be careful and admit that I was living in Houston at a time where I didn't have any money of my own. Like I went to graduate school in Southern California and I have to tell you, once I got some money in my pocket, I liked it a whole lot better than I did when I was there dead ass broke. When I was there dead broke, I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. I think money is probably the the one variable that could that can swing any location. You're, you're exactly no, right. No, no, it's, it's it's 
thing though, like when um, when I was in Miami and one of my buddies was moving into Miami, and he was like, "Yo, so what's it like?" And this is right after I started doing the television show, right? So my life was different at this point. And I do remember I had to tell him, "I'm like, hey man, I got to find somebody else for you to ask that question to." Like I'm I'm talk I'm gonna be talking to you about something completely different. <laughs> like I'm like, oh man, this is great. I got this condo right <laughs> over the beach. I can hear the waves. That ain't got nothing to do with you, you know? Yeah. Like, but if you got that, Miami is excellent. If you don't, I don't know why the hell you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um ugh, God, that makes so much sense. Um Okay, let me uh I'm I'm jumping around here, but I hope you don't mind. You mentioned Tillman Fertita. Um I, so the big news this week, Daryl Morey going to Philadelphia. Uh, I would associate Morey and, and Harden and those Rocket teams. You know, they were so intertwined. I am so uh, looking forward to seeing what both of those, you know, what, what the Harden Rockets turn into as well as what, what Morey does in Philadelphia. And I have to say, I, I love – to hate on Sam Hinkie in the process. And so I, I just think it's like the irony of, of Maury ending up in Philadelphia is, is just delicious. But uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm asking for you is, well, let me ask you, let me ask you this way. My, my big thing with Harden is as somebody that played basketball, I can't imagine having to be James Harden's teammate. I, I think it would get so boring. I, I just cannot imagine having to play basketball that way and, and I'm curious what you think about that and you know it, I, I just don't see that style of basketball where it's so kind of ball dominant in one person one I don't like it personally from like an aesthetic point of view but it just doesn't seem like it, it's built for championships and I'm curious what you think about that we are in complete agreement on just about everything um, that you had to say there. The big thing for me in terms of like getting to actual basketball success is you're not going to play 82 games. Say what you want about James Harden, but he plays them all, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to play 82 games and then play 10, 15 playoff games and then tell me that standing around shooting 27-footers is going to be the path to success. Like, it just feels like a lot to ask out of any individual basketball player that as you get deeper and deeper into these playoff series. Like, when they had that game against the Warriors where they missed, like, 27 threes in a row or whatever, it's like, wow, it's almost like your legs get tired from doing all this stuff. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, you know, it seemed to be, like, fairly logical. And so, yeah, no, I don't enjoy watching the way that the Rockets have done it with James Harden. And it's also always very interesting that the same people used to complain about uh, basketball being far too isolation dominant somehow are good with it when it's James Harden because every now and then he's shooting a three or tricking somebody into committing a foul or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm not – I have not enjoyed the way they've used him. If for no other reason, then, what we saw from him that was so interesting with the Thunder was that – I mean, and the Rockets have used this to a degree. He was such a capable playmaker. You know, like you could put him on the ball and put Russ off the ball and have him out there with Durant. Like the problem they had and why I think they ultimately had to trade him and this doesn't get discussed enough is that they couldn't play good enough defense with those three guys on the floor with Harden out there. Like that was the issue is that he was such a poor defender that there was a serious limitation as to how far they could wind up going with it. But there were all these other things that James Harden can do. And then Maury just decided we're going to build this entire thing around pass the ball to James Harden. Chris Paul, we got you. You're going to have to go along with this. Dwight Howard, you got to go along with this. Russell Westbrook, you got to go along with this. Everybody has to go along 
was we're just going to pass the ball to James Harden. And they had a lot of success. Like, we can't pretend as though they didn't win a lot of games. But I don't think at any of those points they were a legitimate championship contender. Anybody, you cannot deny how good of a player James Harden is. And and you're exactly right. They they had really good teams. And I do give them credit for actually going for it while you know the Golden State Warriors were kind of at their peak, yeah. right? When when it would have been a lot easier to to kind of reload and and try to build for the future. So I, I do appreciate that as just a fan of basketball. What I'm always struck by is whether like Mike D'Antoni, for example, uh, was in Phoenix with with Steve Nash and and presumably was up close and and, and could see you know a, much more of a sharing the ball. Like, like I'm just fascinated. These coaches, I would think, if you could shoot them with true serum, would be like, yeah, you know what? Like I'd love to to move the ball a little bit more and and find some different shots and keep guys involved. But it just doesn't come across that way. And, and so I, I just don't know. If like Harden's personality is that dominant, if they're just getting orders from the the GM level, like like how does it get to that point where where you just have one guy like Harden who becomes that dominant of of an offensive focal point? Well, I think one thing to note is that I mean Daryl Morey in his farewell letter to Houston said James Harden changed my life. Like I have always been critical of Morey because I don't think he ever paid proper consideration to chemistry and the real things about interpersonal interactions and how they affect um, basketball. But he did understand interpersonal interactions in the sense that he built the team around generally what his star player wanted uh, the team to be. And I agree with you. It's hard for me to think that Dan Tony fully bought into the idea that super slowdown isolation, right? And it's not even super slowdown. It's just a game change to where the pace at which the Suns were playing back in the day wasn't that terribly different from the pace that the Rockets were playing, but the Rockets were last in the league in pace and the Suns were first, you know, relative to their errors. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I do think that most coaches would probably think that, like, getting the ball around, even if it isn't, like, mathematically going to be the best thing to do, you know what it's like to deal with these other dudes, right? Yes. They want to shoot the ball. Yes. No, like, the, MB, the ego of the median NBA player the median NBA player looks at James Harden and says, I mean, I might not be able to do that, but I could do something like that if they gave me the ball all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the thing about when, when Jeremy Lin had his run. It was a league full of dudes saying, and by the way, they weren't entirely wrong. Give me the ball up top and run a high pick and roll every time down the floor. See if I don't put up 20 points again. <laughs> you know, and so when you have people who think like that, there's eight but, eight, eight but so many of them that are right. going to be at a place of self-awareness to look at James Harden and just be like, well, you know, he's the store. Just thinking about asking guys to invest defensively, right? And, and to put out effort on the defensive end without really being rewarded on the offensive. Like, I don't care how much you're paying a guy. At, at some level of, of just basic human psychology – like, you know, the, the universal truth in basketball, you know, you keep the big man happy, right? Get, get him some touches, yeah. keep him involved. I, I think that, that the, the truth in that still rings true today, even if it's not the big man per se. I, I just feel like, man, you, you got to keep guys involved. You got to feel, you got to make them feel like they're, they're a threat to score. They're part of the offense. If you want them to really invest in, and play both ends of the floor, but that's, <laughs> That's kind of me proselytizing here, but it just, I don't know. But also, everybody in those players' lives are telling them, 
you need to shoot more. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, like, yeah. like that's the thing. Like, the average person that watches basketball doesn't really know basketball like that. I'm not saying that it's a judgment. It's just like most people just watch it because they enjoy it. Like, not everybody's here trying to analyze and break it down like the subset of the sports fan population that, you know, that I serve with my work. Like, we're not everybody in this. And so their friends just looking at them like, yo, man, how come they don't give you the ball more? Because everybody thinks they do. Like, if you knew an NBA player before he became an NBA player, you saw him playing in high school or anywhere else like that, you think this is the coldest dude that you've ever seen. Like, for most people, when you think about who was the best basketball player at your school and how good you thought that dude was, that dude couldn't even get a scholarship. Not a D2 scholarship. Not, you know, that dude couldn't even get a scholarship. And we talk about dudes in the NBA. So everybody that you've ever seen play that was like, yo, that dude's going to the NBA. You weren't thinking of that as he's going to go to the NBA and make a comfortable living. No, you're thinking that dude's going to go to the NBA and score 20 points a game. Because if that dude can't score 20 points a game, how good do you have to be to score 20 points a game, right? And so everybody around those players is telling them, man, they, you know, they just ain't letting you shine. Like, that's what it is, you know, like politics. That's <laughs> my brother always talk about that. Like, you had the average <laughs> NBA player, why it is that he didn't score more. Politics. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. You, what you say is exactly um, it translates to every to to every sport. But just thinking, people say the exact same thing about golf. And it's you know you go to your your local course or your club, or you think about the high school team, or you know, and it's like the the very best player. Man, he he he's probably not even a good college player, let alone a, a mini tour player, let alone being able to make it on the PGA tour. And then you get to like your middling stars, your 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 top twenty, and then your superstars. And yeah, it, it's just worth it to reiterate that with basketball. It it's such a it's such a uh, a universal truth across all sports. But, like, at least with golf, right? So, I'm assuming the tournaments in Houston, it's what used to be the Shell Houston Open. Exactly. Uh, I don't know what they're – yeah, and they play that one. Is that one that they're playing in the Woodlands at the CPC? Um, it is a new course this year. Uh, you okay. Would, you would think I would have this at the top of my tongue, uh, but I got to – No, okay. Just so I don't give you some bad information here. I believe it's the first year. It's it's a municipal course, actually. Okay. Oh, that's – yeah. Oh, no, 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 you're good. Because yeah. <laughs> my point was, was just kind of general, was that, like, if you could get on the track at the Woodlands, you could reproduce the conditions under which those professional golfers are playing and shooting 65, right? Like, you know at your own course that you don't know anybody that's shooting at 70, right, by and large. Like, you know how hard that is if you're playing golf, and you could do a very direct comparison. People don't realize how big NBA players are and how fast NBA players are and how strong NBA players are. Like there's just, there's, there's no way that television can really give you a grasp of like who those athletes are and just how good they are and how many dudes. And you could probably, you know, speaking of the level of basketball you play, you know what I'm talking about here. You'll talk to guys. They'll be like, so why couldn't he make it? Couldn't get my shot off. Like not that you couldn't make it, not that you couldn't guard anybody. I could not take a jump shot that wasn't getting blocked. Mm-hmm. It, it's unbelievable right. yeah <laughs> it's nuts the guy but so before i got into this full time what, what i'm doing now um i was living in columbus ohio and and i was coaching at a at a high school there and i can remember in the summer we played uh darius Baisley's team who was from cincinnati ohio um now playing for the thunder 
and and just seeing him in person, you're like, oh no, that's an NBA body. Yeah, like he he doesn't look like anybody else <laughs> across these like eight courts here. Like that's you want to look like what an NBA body looks like. Like, yep, that's it. Just the the broad shoulders. Uh, and that's the thing. Like with Dwight Howard is is always the number one example for me. Is like. Man, I just can't even believe how broad those shoulders are. Uh, it's just unbelievable uh, the size and the athleticism that that it takes to play at that level. Like I think about the best high school player that I saw with my own two eyes, who was just Stephen Jackson. I, first time I saw him play was when he was a sophomore in high school, and it was known that he was going to go to the NBA right then. Second best high school player I've ever seen is a dude named Bernard Smith. Bernard Smith was Houston area player of the year, my senior year in high school. But you have never heard of Bernard Smith, and I can't understand how. Like, the idea to me that Bernard <laughs> Smith is not in the NBA indicates yeah. strongly that getting to the NBA is really, 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 really hard. Yeah, yeah. Man, sometimes it's – when watching high school basketball especially, and I love watching college basketball for the same reason, it's fun to try to suss out – who is I, I? I have no better term for it, but but I think there's a big distinction in who is simply like out athleting people, right? Like like who's just yeah. a superior athlete? Because because you can you can score in in high school and you can score at the collegiate level just by being a dominant athlete. But man, if you don't if you don't have a, a baseline skill level, you're 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 gonna get exposed and you're you're likely not gonna make it in the NBA. And that's I think once I learned that, it's like, oh no, you, you know, not only do you have to be this freakish athlete, but you got to combine it with a skill set that's, you know, uh, world class. Also, it's whew, that's that's a combination. You know what people need to see? What I think really drives that point home is if you go to a big, like a fairly big college, like a college that's got uh, power five sports, and watch the intramural competition and try to figure out how it is. There's always a team with nothing but football players and they always lose to the law school, <laughs> right? Like the law school yeah. and the medical school, because they've always got these former hyper-competitive former athletes, right? right? But who lack the athleticism and knew, okay, this is not where my future is, and they stay running intramurals. And, those, and the football players are devastating on the break. Like you don't want no parts of them on the break at all. <laughs> but if anything requires them to dribble, man, it's not happening. Right, yep, yep. God, that's, that's, that's so true. What uh I, I know you you I sorry you forgive me I'm 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 bouncing around still but I saw on your profile that you did um you've taught at, at Duke and Elon and I'm not sure of other places but I was really curious what what kind of classes you've taught and and how much and if you enjoy that I love it actually I taught uh, econ 101 in effect I don't know what the actual title was but principles of econ at Elon. And at Duke, I taught a class that I actually mapped out myself called the Black Athlete in America, where I took six biographies of famous black athletes um, from Jack Johnson to Allen Iverson and used them to contextualize perceptions of black athletes and the struggles and all those things and really show how they were very similar, even going back to the early part of the 20th century. And I really enjoy working with students. Like, radio has always been my favorite of the broadcast media because there's an intimacy to it. Like, I really enjoy working with younger people and kind of helping them, you know, get this and, you know, help, helping kind of, helping them learn how to think, 
Mm-hmm. Like I, that's something that I really, really, really enjoy. Um, and, you know, and if the opportunity comes again to do it in my schedule, it's it's the sort of thing I would love to do again. Uh, but yeah, now that was that was in part stuff I did because I needed to eat, but it was also something like my parents are college professors, so this is kind of in the blood in a way, I suppose. I imagine you got to read a lot, and and I would assume it's it's pretty varied in terms of subject matter. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you, like econ specifically, uh, you know, are, <laughs> are you a Chicago guy? Are you a fish and market guy? Are you more of a behavioral economics? Uh, but then I, I would also love to know kind of what you enjoy reading uh, more broadly. So with economics, um, political economy is the stuff that really drove, like really drew me in and wanted for me to want to go farther, which is, you know, using the principles of economics to explain uh political behavior in that way like those are the things that really really drove me into it then i got into the program i was out of carolina and i realized oh this is just doing a lot of equations i didn't like that at all like yeah. that was not, that 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 was not a good deal like we start getting into all that stuff i'm like nah that really wasn't what i was in it for um that's also why i'm not in it anymore but that was not uh what i was what i was in it for reading i like biographies i don't read i don't do much fiction okay uh, i don't do any fiction if i'm being honest but I really enjoy, like, a good biography gets me. I really enjoy biographies and musicians as much as anything else. Like, those are the things that really, really tend to light me up. Huh. Did the, uh, did the Great Recession fascinate you? I, I, and I ask that, I, you're a few years older. I'm, I just turned 37, uh, so I, I believe you're just a few years older. And I, for me at least, economically speak, I, I feel like the, the, the market crash around, 2007 2008 was the impetus for me like i couldn't i I couldn't get enough um you know from the more mainstream like big short uh into more like wonky books like that was the event i think that was pretty formative for me man people in charge like they kind of know what's going on right And, and then the the housing crash and the great recession and it's like yeah i don't know if anybody really knows what's going on uh truly I, I'm just curious if there was like a a moment that that economically speaking that that's really grabbed you. Well, what I think was interesting about 08 was it wasn't a question for me as to whether or not people knew what they were doing. It was whether they cared, right? And so the political economy stuff for me came in handy at that point because the one thing the political economist does, political economist does is always remember the individual agency and incentives of the people making these decisions. And they are not here for anybody else. They are here for themselves, and they are acting according to their own utility curve. And that is what I think we saw in 2008. They knew the stuff they were doing was a bad idea. They were getting paid in the process. And once it got to the end or whatever it was going to be, they weren't going to suffer any real actual punishment. And so it was worth it to them to just go ahead and roll the dice on it. Like That was the big thing that I figured out from 08, because in the other thing, 08 pointed out to me something that I had always felt was not getting enough discussion when I was taking economics courses, which is if the whole goal of this is just to increase aggregate demand, that doesn't really tell us very much about how this is affecting individual people within the economy. And so we wound up after 08 with all these indicators of a growing economy, but the economy was growing in a way that wasn't benefiting that many people. And that was a contributing factor to where we are right now, that you can get out here and say the economy is great. But people generally, like when they talk about running in an election on the economy, you're not running on the full economy. People don't care about the full economy. 
They care about their own personal economy, right? Like mm-hmm. this COVID thing and what it's doing to the economy right now is pretty bad. But for me personally, I mean, I had a contract. I'm doing all right. You know, like I'm going to make it. Uh, I can speak to what's going on larger, but generally speaking, people are talking about their own personal economy. And everything that happened from 08 on, including the crash itself, the people who got hurt didn't really wind up doing any better. And those people in charge are perfectly aware of this. They didn't care. It's the 180000 for Cam Newton, right? You know? Yep. yep. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we'll pay that. Cool. <laughs> well, if we get caught, it won't be that bad. <laughs> Yeah, nobody's going to jail. We'll go on probation for a year, maybe. Uh, yeah, I make that trade every time. I, re- I would love to talk to you for like an hour just about econ, but I, I feel like that's <laughs> you, you don't want to, and, and I feel like that's that's not the uh, the purpose of of the podcast. Um, one one thing we always like to joke about is and, and find out regionally where did you guys? What was the grocery store? Uh, was there a was was there a preferred grocer when you were in Houston? Yeah, so the the Houston grocery store was Randall's um, when I was younger, right? And Randall's cost a little bit more money, but they were nicer. Uh, the stores were nicer. People in store inside the store was nicer. All that stuff, like Randall's, and then there's H E B, which is actually a fascinating story. They are a grocery chain out of San Antonio, and I remember they came to Houston when I was in high school. And you want to try to get a job there because they paid more than anywhere else. Like they paid seven dollars an hour for cashiers. Like that was a big thing uh, with HEB. But HEB has been a fascinating story in the pandemic because after the swine flu in two thousand nine, they established this pandemic plan and they were ready. If anything like that ever happened again, they were prepared. And so when this all got terrible for everybody else and nobody knew what to do, HEB was on the road ready to rock. It's wild. H-E-B and Wegmans up in the Northeast have been the two – people get most passionate about H-E-B and Wegmans, and, and I just find that fascinating. We, you know, we've, we've mentioned Kroger and Publix, and, you know, but it, it comes back to H-E-B and Wegmans, I think, are, are people's two favorite uh, grocery stores. Yeah, I tell you this, though. People in Florida, man, you think they on the payroll to talk about, uh, to talk about Publix. They can't get enough of that. I'm a Kroger guy. I try to, I try to, I, I fight that fight. I, I don't, I, Publix is very fine. I, I don't get it though. I, I don't get the, 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 like the, the loyalty and the, almost the, the ferocious loyalty. Right, right, right. Cause like Kroger, Kroger was in Houston and Kroger was in Atlanta. So Kroger is kind of like a constant for me. Um, in that way, my parents have lived in Atlanta since I left high school. So like, that's been like a, a sort of constant for me, but it's just, Especially the Florida people. They love it. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Um, okay, I got to ask you about one other thing. A guy I work with, uh, he goes by Tron Carter on Twitter. Um, and when I told him I was getting the chance to talk to you, he was like, oh, my God. He's like, you got to ask Bomani. He blocked me. He's like, I think I've tweeted one thing at, at him, <laughs> and he blocked me. I'm like, Tron, you're, you're not alone. He blocks a lot of people. Uh, in fact, he does a bit on that from time to time on his podcast where, you know, you can call in and, you know, plead your case, and, and he'll, you know, judge whether or not to unblock you. But I think, you know, coincidentally, I think it was a Cam Newton thing. Tron is from Atlanta, was a Falcons fan. 
had some animosity towards Cam Newton, and I think he says it was something Cam Newton related. Uh, and he showed me the tweet. I can say, you know, there wasn't any cursing or wasn't any of that. He was like, oh, I got the block. I'm like, well, you know, I, I can ask Bomani if he can go back and unblock you, maybe. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what did he say? What, is, what did he say? Let, I'm curious. Okay, let me bear with me just a second. I'm going to pull up so I, so I have it exactly. And I wish he was here. So he just had a, a little baby, um, or else I, I oh, wanted to get him on to 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 talk to you as well. Um, but he's got a he's got to watch as his wife's got something to do today. Um, let me see. He sent it to me. Sorry, I know this is a little bit of dead air. I can, yeah, I can. It's cool. I'm just saying, though, somebody named Tron Carter had his uh, account suspended. So I wonder if this is the same Tron Carter. He been out here, Mister Haven. No, I don't think so. so his uh, Tron Carter NLU is, is at Tron Carter okay. NLU, and it, I got the screenshot right. of it. I I don't know what your tweet was, but he said Apomani underscore Jones, uh, and I'm quoting now: "People ain't reaching." One, he's an idiot, presumably talking about Cam. Two, he's selfish. Three, he's a thief, and four, the Superman thing is annoying. Now. This was very heated back in the time, and I can report in the last couple of years, Tron has made a full circle on Cam. I think it's, and he now, honestly, I think it's his outfits that really turned him. And it's like the the more ridiculous they got, the more Tron was like boomeranging back all in on Cam. And I think getting away from the Panthers helped a little bit too because he's a Falcons fan. Yeah, I got to say that hearing <laughs> that tweet, he sounded like, he sounded like a dork. You know what I'm saying? Like, he sounded like somebody with a set of priorities where it was not about me being offended, disrespected by what he said as much as he just didn't seem like the kind of person I ever wanted to talk to again. You know? Like, if I don't ever want to talk to you again, how do I ensure that I never have to hear from you again? Like, like I take your tweet as an indicator of what the next tweet is going to be. And once I heard that, I was like, nah, nah, nah. nah it's good to see that he is a... Uh, managed to come back around but he sounded like super herb in that and so he'll have to overcome um you know his herbish inclinations and maybe one day buddy maybe one day oh god i love it i love it um well Bamani, i don't want to take any more of your time uh i know you got some some decision desk 24 7 to tune into here uh we can't start too early <laughs> i'm joking on that um Thank you so much, dude. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, let me ask you this. Sorry. I, I didn't ask you any golf. Have you ever played golf? Do you like golf? Do you enjoy golf? Has that been yeah. something you've ever played? Yeah, actually, uh, my mother, around like the year 2000 or somewhere in there, she got really into golf. And then my brother got really into golf. And in 2008, I started playing golf. And I was like, my brother gave me a set of irons. And I was playing golf so much to the point where, like, my credit card was getting declined as the little track that I was going to because I was just out there playing so much golf. Like, I really, I haven't played in a long time at this point. But, no, I enjoy playing golf, or golf enjoys playing me. It all depends on which way you want to look at it. Because I thought, I, I swear from listening to you in the past, I thought you had played at least. But then I, I just saw Michael Collins recently. Um and he was like, man, I'm always trying to get Bomani to play. Because I told him, I was like, Michael, I, you know, I, I hear you on Bomani podcast. I really enjoy it. Uh, he's like, yeah, I can't get Bomani to play it. I'm like, really? I was like, I, I kind of thought he used to play at least. Or that was surprising oh, to yeah. me. 
<laughs> yeah, no, honestly, I would be, I would worry about playing with him just because I'm not good enough. I would hold him up, right? Like that's why I, I just want to get good enough at golf to where with with dignity I could play in like a charity tournament or something like that. I got you know, you. Where I could go out there and do that and not be self conscious about it. And I'm just not at that place. I, I do. I am not giving up on the possibility of reaching that mark. Okay. All right. Well, maybe, you know, if you ever, if you ever get the, get the bug again and, and get the itch, we'll, we'll have to check back in and, uh, you can, you can tell us how the, the golf adventures are going. I'm here for it, man. I really <laughs> appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you so much. All right. Bomani, thanks for making time. It was, it was a big thrill for me to be able to talk to you. I, I love your work and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. No, man. Thank you. You have a good one.